0: Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is coming. Our text for our sermon is recorded in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. To the messenger of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you live, where the throne of Satan is, and I know that you hold fast to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days when Antipas, my faithful witness, was put to death near you, the place where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who instructed Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the children of Israel, so that they would eat things offered to idols and commit sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have some people who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, which no one will know except the one who receives it. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, for the last few weeks, we have been working through the message to the seven churches in Revelation, and the overall theme has been questions to ask ourselves as we read the messages to the seven churches. Now, as it was with Ephesus, and as it was with Smyrna, in the beginning of this message, our exalted Lord has lots of praise for Pergamum, and there is something there we'll get into that we recognize there is a lot to be praised. But there's a problem. And from here, throughout the rest of the sermon, I will be preaching on my own translation of the inspired Greek language that John wrote in because I want to bring some of the things out in it, including the emphasis. So the problem begins at verse 14. It'll continue through 15. But he says, But I have a few things against you that you have at Pergamum, those who keep on holding tightly to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to throw a snare in front of the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And so today, as we ask our question, looking at the message to the church of Pergamum, we will ask, are we holding tightly to the teaching of Balaam? Now, to answer that question, we have to understand a little bit more about Balaam. Recall that when God takes the first generation out of slavery to Egypt, that generation just constantly refuses to trust in the Lord in spite of all of his mighty acts of deliverance. And finally, when it comes to the 12 spies, God says, I've had enough. Not a one of you will enter the promised land except for uh, Joshua and Caleb. So this is the next generation and they are beginning the conquest of the promised land. And when they come near the borders of Medean and Moab, the people go, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to do? Well, the king of Moab, Balak, he has a plan. There's this guy. He lives beyond the Euphrates River. But this guy has a reputation at being good at using the gods to curse people. Now, I don't think Balak ever believes exclusively in the true Lord of the Bible, but the true Lord of the Bible speaks to him. So it is that the king sends an envoy to Balaam and and Balaam says, hang on, let me consult the God of these people. And in Numbers, the whole thing starts at Numbers 22, but Numbers uh, verses 12 and 13, we're told, God said to Balaam, you are not to go with them. You are not to curse the people for they are blessed. Balaam got up in the morning and said to Balak's officials, go back to your land because the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Balak won't let it go. He keeps offering more and more money. And of course, Balaam, enticed by the money, says, this God's talking to me. said, don't do this, but I don't care. I want the money. And what ensues again in, in 22 through chapter 24 is actually quite comical because every time Balaam opens up his mouth like he's going to curse the Israelites for Balak, he ends up saying a blessing and he ends up cursing the enemies that the Israelites are going to be conquering. Well, Ultimately, it just seems to end there where Balak's saying, you keep blessing these people. And Balaam says, I told you I couldn't say a curse against them. And it just seems to end. And then at Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, we're told, while Israel stayed in Shittim, the people started to commit sexual immorality with the women of Moab. The women invited the people to the sacrifices for their gods. The people ate and bowed down to their gods. The Israelites attached themselves to the Baal of Peor. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. Isn't that weird? It ends with Balaam uh, in chapter 24, and then all of a sudden there's, there's this big sin that goes on. But if we fast forward ahead, when the Israelites conquer the people of Medean, in Numbers 31 verses 15 through 16, we're near the end of Moses's life here, obviously, we're told Moses said to them, have you allowed every woman to live? Look, following Balaam's advice, these women were the ones who incited the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident. And so the plague came upon the community of the Lord. So it becomes pretty clear and do a little bit of deduction. Balaam did not want to go home empty handed. So he says, hang on to Balak. I got some advice for you that I think will work. Use your women, use lust to entice the Israelites away. And of course, when they're worshiping a false God, a different God, we would know it's a false God. When they're worshiping a different God, perhaps this God will get jealous and he himself will strike them down. And sadly, his plan worked, right? So and now we know what the teaching of Balaam is. Balaam was enticed by money to curse people and work against God's word. And then he gives that advice to use uh, a sexual immorality in that to lead them to worship false gods. So now, uh, whenever there's a in in every message to these churches, there's two that are doing nothing wrong. They just need encouragement. All of them need encouragement. Some need something wrong. Uh, An attribute of Christ that was mentioned that John saw in Revelation chapter one is mentioned, because this is going to be what's needed to fix the problem. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, we were told, and holding in his right hand seven stars, we learned those are the messengers of the churches, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining in its zenith in its power. In his mouth, remember, Jesus is the spokesman for the Trinity. He's the word that became flesh, as John will tell us. And that tongue is, that, that sharp two-edged sword acting as his tongue is the word of God. One side of that word, you know, there's two main teachings, is the law. The law exposes our sin. The law, if you're a sinner, the law always condemns you. It always accuses you. But the other side is, takes care of that sin, right, once it's been exposed. That's the good news of salvation in Christ, that God became a man and did all the work to save us. That removes our sin because when we announce that to others, the blood of Christ is poured upon them. So our text for the church of Pergamum begins at chapter 2, verse 12, which says, next to the angel of the assembly in Pergamum, you are to write these things. Now, let's just stop here. As I've said in every one of these, the Greek word used is angelos, which we often translate as angel. But I don't think God is sending John to write letters to angels who can appear before the throne of God. As I've said in the past, at this time, they didn't meet in one building. There was not like one gigantic church in Pergamum, if you're looking for a local assembly. They were meeting in each other's homes, and they would be studying the word of God. But in every one of these communities, there appears to be a person who who God has, allowed, who has put to make sure that the word is being taught in its truth and purity and lead them. Now in modern days, we would call that a pastor, right? This was not an overlord or a bishop, but this was somebody who was especially the one God had put uh, in charge of making sure the word was taught. And again, it says the assembly, the Greek word used there, ekkalasia, means to call out. They have been called out of slavery, especially to the devil, to sin and death. They've been called out of the ways of this world, and they've been called to be citizens in God's kingdom, God's children, members of his flock, but they've also, therefore, been called to gather together, as I mentioned, they do in their homes and stuff. So God's plan for every one of these churches is to send his message to this one person especially, and this person will teach the, he will spread that message and make sure it's taught to the people as they gather together around that word. And that will spread to each of the various assemblies of people gathering in their homes throughout these communities. And so he says, next to the angel or messenger of the assembly in Pergamum, you are to write these things. The one who keeps on having the previously mentioned sword, specifically the one that is two-edged, Specifically, the sharp one. Notice how the inspired Greek language emphasizes something about that sword twice. We've already covered that it's two edged, it's law and gospel, and that it's sharp. If you're going to get into a sword fight with somebody, especially the devil, would you like to have a dull sword or would you like to have one that's razor sharp? Because the law cuts. The law cuts away our sin because it exposes us, and the gospel completely removes our sin because it's the blood of Christ and it heals. So the point is, the word of the Lord is sharp. It is the only offensive, and it's really the only, because we got other armor, but it's the only defensive weapon we need. So, as we look at that, the attribute of Christ they needed for encouragement here is in fact that he is the spokesman for the Trinity, it's his word. He has it, it's sharp, it's two-edged. So he continues in verse 13, I have perceived where it is that you are residing, where the throne of Satan is located, and that you keep on holding tightly to my name, and you did not renounce the faith about me, even in the days when Antipas, my witness, specifically my faithful one, was killed next to you guys where Satan is residing. Once again, the word Jesus uses for knowledge is I have perceived. He's seen it in the past, and so he continues knowing. And this reminds us of the attribute in chapter 1, verse 14, and his eyes were as flames of fire, which is describing his omniscience. He, uh, he's all-knowing. But he says, I've perceived where you are residing. And then he says those scary words, where the throne of Satan is located. And in fact, at the end of verse 13, he will once again say, where Satan is residing. Now, Satan is not present everywhere like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are. But Satan is powerful. And the place where he is working the hardest, especially in Asia Minor, but among the, among the Christian church at this time, is Pergamum. Now, if you stop and think about that for a minute, this is where the devil is, roaring, is raging his greatest war against the Christian church It shows it's a miracle of God with that sharp two-edged sword that there's a Christian to be found in Pergamum. So that sharp two-edged sword, they're right there where Satan's throne is located, where Satan is working the hardest. And he says, and that you keep on holding tightly my name. Not just holding it, holding it tightly. Now, I've said this many times. The commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. God's name is everything God reveals to us in his word that he actually does for us, for our benefit, to make us his children. So God the Father, that name tells us that he is our heavenly daddy, that he's ruling over creation for us. The name Jesus tells us he is God who took on human flesh and saved us. So by saying you're holding tightly to my name, they are not forsaking the word here, right? And it's interesting. Next, he says, and you did not renounce the faith. Literally, the Greek language says you did not denounce my faith. Now, he's not saying they denounced Jesus believing in himself. And so a lot of people translate this as faith in me. And I would definitely want to understand that. But the fact that this seems to be used parallel with the name of God that he just mentioned, holding tightly to it. I think there's more than just having trust in Jesus. Remember, all the New Testament, except for the book of Revelation, has been written at this point, and that means all the Old Testament is definitely there. Everything they've been taught about Jesus, and they would have been taught things about Jesus more than likely, even from guys like the Apostle John, they're holding tightly to that. It's a reminder for us, because lots of times people say, oh, let's just ignore this one little thing, like what God teaches us about the Lord's Supper. We'll just ignore that, and then quickly everything comes tumbling down but not them, they're holding tightly. And he even says, even in the days when Antipas, and he says, my witness. Antipas was clearly murdered as a martyr, but God used that as a witness to him. And he says, specifically, my faithful one. Antipas was faithful, was killed next to you guys where Satan is residing. We couldn't say with 100% accuracy, but probably he would have been before his death one of those angelos, one of those messengers that would be a, today a modern-day equivalent of a pastor in Pergamum. The point here is the attribute of Christ they needed is his word. And we see here to deny or ignore any of God's word is actually to deny Christ, because they didn't deny one teaching of Christ. And when we put that all together as we ask the question, are we holding tightly to the teaching of Balaam, we see holding tightly to God's word is the only prevention and cure for holding tightly to the teaching of Balaam. Now, he gets into the problem in verses 14 and 15. He says, But I have a few things against you that you have at Pergamum, those who keep on holding tightly to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to throw a snare in front of the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Accordingly, you yourself even have those who likewise keep on holding tightly to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, The teaching of Baal there when he says uh, he taught Balak to throw a snare in front of the people of Israel. The Greek word that I translate as snare is, you know, like sometimes you take a, a trap to catch an animal. And maybe it's a stick that holds a box up or something and you put some food on it. And the animal grabs it and actually knocks the trigger, the stick itself out. And then it's trapped, right? Balaam knew what the snare was going to be that would catch the people. And that was what he taught them. And then after that, in verse 15, he says, Accordingly, you yourself, talking to the whole group of believers as the bride of Christ, one group there in Pergamum, even have those, not all of them, but those who likewise keep on holding tightly to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, we encountered the Nicolaitans in the message to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, where they were commended because he says, You hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and I do too. This is the only thing we know of about the Nicolaitans today, of what they taught. And he says, accordingly, there are some who likewise keep on holding tightly to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Seems the Nicolaitans themselves are teaching things that gets people to commit sexual immorality and worship other gods. Now, we can understand how this can happen. Uh, If you take, for example, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he has to address the fact that there are people who say, Last week, I was worshiping that false god, and now you're offering me chicken from the butcher? Am I okay, okay to eat this? And and I, of course, you know sometimes they would like kill a chicken, they'd read its guts and say, this is what the gods are saying, we know they're false gods, and then they'd give the meat and the butcher would sell it because that was fresh meat, right? They didn't have refrigeration. Paul says, it's okay to eat that, so long as it doesn't burden another brother or sister in Christ's conscience. But what happens when you start reasoning, therefore it's okay for me to go directly to an idol feast and worship that idol and eat meat that for that idol. That seems to be what the Nicolaitans are doing, and that's definitely what's going on as people are following the teaching of Balaam. And what about the sexual immorality? Again, if we look at the letter to the Corinthians, there's that one guy. That guy, he he understood his sins were forgiven, but he forgot that God's law was not, was not completely nullified. It still tells us holiness. And so he says... You know, Christ has forgiven me. I'm free from the law. I can have sex with my stepmother. And he went around town bragging about it. Well, we can deduce about the Nicolaitans and likewise those who would then be following what Jesus labels the teachings of Balaam. And he includes the Nicolaitans in that is many of them are probably thinking that way. Look, Jesus forgives me. So I can go to these idol feasts. Besides, I know they're not real. And a lot of those idol feasts even led led to, to sexual perversions and stuff that they thought were worshiping that God. And so you end up with people saying, I can sin, it's okay, Jesus has forgiven me. And he will forgive me. And that's a warning for us. Because oftentimes we as Christians can say, well Christ will forgive me, therefore I can run into this sin. Now, we all have sins that we struggle with and often by the day lose our struggle. I call those pet sins. It's one thing to struggle with the sin and lose the struggle for the day when the sinful nature gets its sucker punch in. It's another thing to run in and embrace that sin and, and, and wallow in it and, and excuse away, saying it's all right, Jesus will forgive me. So what we want to get out of this is as we, as we ask the question, are we holding tightly to the teaching of Balaam? We see holding tightly to God's word is the only prevention and cure, but we also see using the forgiveness Christ has won for us as an excuse to sin actually to deny Christ. Now, in verse 16, Jesus tells those who are guilty of that sin what they're to do of it. Verse 16, therefore change your mind. Now, that's the Greek word for repent. They're to change their mind. They're to stop thinking it's okay to run in and just wallow in this sin like a pig wallows in the mire, excusing it, saying Christ will forgive me, and start saying, no, Christ has forgiven me. I don't want to commit this sin. And he says, now, if you do not change your mind, again, that would be repent, then I am coming to you quickly and I will wage war with them. Now, notice how that said, he says the singular for the whole congregation, I'm coming to you quickly, but he doesn't hold the whole congregation accountable there. He says, I will wage war with them. That's the ones who were guilty of falling into the teaching of Balaam. And some of those would be the Nicolaitans. But he also then, he uses a preposition, what he's going to use to wage war, but it's the one that's for exclusivity. This is the only tool he's going to use. So I will wage war with them only with the prior mentioned sword of my mouth. He's going to wage war, but what's he going to use? He's going to come at them with the law. And if they repent, he'll give them the gospel. Let's remove that sin. Gone. No problem. But if they don't, all he has for them is law. Now, notice he says this to the whole congregation while he focuses that the ones he's going to wage war with are the ones who are committing the sin. It's a reminder for us. When we have a brother or sister in Christ who is embracing a sin, God does want us to talk to them about it. Now, we've got to be careful. We don't need to be busybodies sitting there staring at our neighbors and taking notes like spies all the time. But when we know a brother or sister in Christ is embracing a sin, we've got to point it out to them. That's the true loving thing. So holding tightly to God's word means we will repent and we will admonish those who do not. Now, here's probably a good time to say, yeah, we got that law and we got the gospel. But if we had somebody come to our church, a couple uh, who were living together and they weren't married and they were new to Christianity, the way I would deal with that sin with that couple would be totally different than if I had a student I'd had in catechism 10 years ago who now is shacking up, when I know I have taught them the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and explain to them, keeping the marriage bed pure means God wants to bless sexual intimacy, but only between a man and a woman who are married together. And I tell my catechism kids, if you commit that sin, because right now, for example, people are living together a lot, and our culture is encouraging that, I tell them, I will not be easy on you, because I know I've taught it to you. It's even one of the questions I ask on Examination Sunday. So again, we've got to be careful. It's not even playing favorites. In both cases, a couple who are if from the world, new to Christianity, comes and visits us. I've got to take the time to build this up and teach it to them. Somebody who already knows better, who's saying, Ah, it's okay, they don't care, or they're embracing the sin. Yeah, I'm going to be much harsher with the law right away. But again, for the person who repents we have the good news of salvation in Christ. So we see holding tightly to God's word means we will repent and admonish those who do not. Now, in verse 17, once again, he says, the one who keeps on having ears is to hear what the spirit is saying to the assemblies. And every one of these messages has that. All believers, because we all have ears, are to listen to what he's saying to all the churches. It's meant for all of us. And then again, he says to the one who keeps on conquering. And every time we've had these messages, I've pointed out, how do we conquer? Christ has already won eternal life for you. So when we come to the word, we hear the word, we stay in the word, that nourishes our new man and that keeps him strong to fight the sinful nature so that we don't forfeit what's been given to us. So he says, to the one who keeps on conquering, I will give to him, that's the conqueror, from the manna which has been hidden, and I will give to him a white stone, and upon that stone a new name has been written, which no one has perceived except the one who is receiving it. What is this manna that's been hidden? I read about people who get to Revelation and they try to claim things like the manna that was put in the ark and maybe the ark's hidden in Ethiopia and all kinds of goofy things. But you know, we already know what the manna is that's been hidden. After Jesus fed the 5,000... Remember, they were going to force him to be their bread king. They wanted to say, more bread, and watch him miraculously, or maybe the way they were thinking of it, magically make it appear. They were going to force him to be king, and they kept saying, Moses, give us manna. So, uh, so are you going to give us more bread? So in John chapter 6, verses 30 through 40, we're told, Then they asked him, So what miraculous sign are you going to do that we may see it and believe you? What miraculous sign are you going to perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Amen, amen. I tell you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said to him, give us this bread all the time. I am the bread of life. So now we know who the man of heaven is. It's Jesus. And he continues, The one who comes to me will never be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. Even the people in Pergamum who are clinging to the word of God, in spite of the devil's work there, they're always nourished by the word of God. Then he continues, But I said to you that you have also seen me, and you do not believe. See what makes the man a hidden? When we refuse to believe in Christ, the man is hidden. But he continues, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those who he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See the grace of Christ here. If you're one of the people who had fallen into the teaching of Balaam, and especially if you're one of the Nicolaitans then, which was seen, seems to be a subcategory of that, Jesus says, when you repent, you are conquering. My word will do that, and you have not forfeited life. I will keep you. And just to assure them of that, that white stone that's mentioned, he said and that they'll be given a white stone, and upon that stone a new name has been written, which no one has perceived except the one who is receiving it. In this part of the world, in those times, if you went to court and had a trial by jury, if you will. They were given a white stone and a black stone. And whichever stones ended up the most in the bucket when the court case was over, that was your verdict. White meant innocent. And of course, for us Christians, we know white is the color of righteousness. Christ's righteousness. And what is this new name that's been written on it? Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, when you and I go to heaven, our sinful nature is ripped away. In this life, let's admit it, our primary call once we've been brought to faith is to stay in that word and stay in the faith. And then, of course, we share that with our neighbors. But we always do that with the sinful nature. When we're in heaven, and when we have the new heavens and the new earth, we aren't going to have a sinful nature. Just as I've said that Christ's name is what the Bible reveals to us that he does for us, and then he labels that. So what you do in heaven will be labeled and you will have a new name. We don't know what it is yet. You won't know it until you have that stone. So there's no point even in speculating. But I think a great way of understanding this or confirming this is uh, John's first epistle, chapter three, verses two and three. Dear friends, we are children of God now, but what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he is revealed, we will be like him and we will see him as he really is. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. So again, if you were one of those people who had fallen into this sin and you repented, how wonderful to be reminded Christ has forgiven you and there's a place for you in heaven. So the last part we want to get out of this is holding tightly to God's word means we will conquer by hearing and using his word. That's what works repentance. So as we've asked the question today, are we holding tightly to the teaching of Balaam? We've seen holding tightly to God's word is the only prevention and the only cure. Using the forgiveness Christ has won for us as an excuse to sin is to deny Christ. Holding tightly to God's word means we will repent and admonish those who do not, and holding tightly to God's word means we will conquer by hearing and using his word. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with complete joy and peace as you continue to believe, so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.